We've been hearing a lot about fake news in the last uh, few months. We hear about fake news and what's being propagated as uh, true and not necessarily is true. It's really nothing new. I can remember prior election cycles when they used the word doublespeak. Um, and there's all sorts of synonyms, spin, gaslighting, media manipulation, social bots, alternative facts. It is the promotion of false information. It's tweaking something just a little bit to make us suspicious or doubtful or not believe. And uh, it's nothing new. Um, it seems embroiled and dusted up right now more so than perhaps in our lifetimes. But it's as old as antiquity. It's the same when Jesus Christ walked the planet. Now, the scribes and Pharisees were his constant antagonists, and they were masters of false speak, double speak, uh, fake news, propaganda, putting forth disinformation, trying to create a hoax about something. And so while we might be embroiled in it and think we're uh, unique and clever and all that, we're really not. We're pretty old and boring. Um, this is the way the world is. It doesn't like truth. It doesn't like hard facts. Uh, even though the disciples had seen and heard hard evidence about who this Jesus was, even though they had been with him and experienced him, they did not understand who they were with or what he was doing. Uh, he was an amazing teacher. He was unique. He performed miracles. Crowds came out to see him. He uh, had power over the elements. He could turn water into wine. He could walk on water. He could calm a storm. He could speak with a word. Even though they saw these things and heard these things, they did not really understand who he was. We continue our study in the Gospel of Mark. I invite you to open your Bible or your device to Mark chapter 8. We will look at the whole chapter, most the cha uh, all down to verse 26 today, as we continue our exposition of the study of Mark. We begin with the crowd's hunger. They're hungry for food, but they're also hungry for something else. Mark chapter 8, beginning verse 1, in those days when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat. Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them, and they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he blessed them, he ordered them to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with the disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. Uh, the crowd, again, is back to the capitalists again, Mark tells us. So this is a second occurring. There's nothing to eat. The record's clear. Uh, Jesus comments that they've been three days following his teaching without food. Um, it struck me. There's a couple things in the text that reveals this is not springtime anymore. Mark doesn't give us the inside of green grass. It's later in the season. Some other uh, hints in the text tell us it's probably hot and warm. And they're listening and following him for three days without food. And several weeks back when I was studying this, it struck me, would I follow somebody's teaching on the hillsides of Galilee without something to eat for three days? 
Would I be that interested in what Jesus has to say that I wouldn't let my belly be my God? I mean, it's amazing how many times during the day I think, I need something to eat. I'm hungry. I have to get a bite. It's time for lunch. It's time for dinner. What's for dinner tomorrow night? I mean, it can pretty well control a lot of my thinking pattern. I'm making you all hungry right now. I know that. But three days, whatever this Jesus had, they wanted. A touch, a word, to hear him. But it struck me, they were willing to follow him. His compassion comes out, verse 2. He has compassion on them, their physical needs. That There's some distance that they would travel for food and they might faint. Again, probably a hint in the text, it's warmer in, the, in this climate time of year. And so it's unlike Mark 6.35 where it was already quite late to send the, the people away. He says, no, we can't send them away because some of them wouldn't make it. They've been, they're famished. We, we talk about exposure, the way we talk about it. You've been exposed. You've been out in the elements. You haven't eaten or had enough hydration, and they might get sick. Verse 4 betrays the disciples' comprehension of Jesus. We, I don't want to be hard on the disciples. We need to be careful that we don't uh, you know, talk about what an idiot a disciple is or what's, you know, those stiff-necked Jews, they were so stupid. Um, because, number one, we're going to see them one day in glory. Remember that time? Uh, and, and number two, uh, we're not any different. I am certain they have the same comments about us as they watch our life of disbelief and our life of failure. And they go, they don't get it that well either. So we want to be kind uh, to them, but we also want to see what Jesus is saying and how he teaches them. Um, as with the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples' resources are inadequate to meet the need. Um, so verse 4 reveals they had forgotten uh, the Lord's ability uh, from the prior miracle. Verse 5, how many loaves do you have? It's a tee-up. It's the same question he asked them in chapter 638. What do you have? And that wasn't enough to spur their memory. But they come up with the seven loaves. And then there's three key words I want you to notice. Taking, gave thanks, and broke. Taking, gave thanks, and broke. These are, uh, not to bore you with grammar on Sunday morning, but they're the same grammar, it, it breaks a little in English, but they're the same grammatical form in, in uh, Greek, so the hearer, the reader, would understand the lilt. He's taking, he's giving thanks, he's breaking. He's taking, he's giving thanks, he's breaking. And this activity is decisive in nature, and it's initiated by Jesus. He tooks, he gives thanks, and he breaks. And then the fourth participle is started giving. And that's a different tense verb. And this is the ongoing activity part of it. So the decisive nature, he takes, he gives thanks, he breaks, and the miracle occurs as he starts giving. It just, it's a continu- he kept on giving, he kept on breaking, he kept on giving, and that's the only insight we have in the miracle. Chapter 641 had the same phrase. He kept on giving them away. Verses 8 and 9, we read they were eight and satisfied. <clears throat> they picked up seven large baskets full. <clears throat> so we have... Concern for the number of people again, um, remember in Matthew chapter 15, we, ta- we, we read in there that there were 4,000 men besides women and children. And we talked two weeks ago about the nature of the miracle, uh, the nature of the family system was the head of the home was the man. He might be married, he might have a couple of kids with him, but he more than likely, probably I, w- I would guess a third or more had their mother-in-law or the mother because the husband probably deceased, the granddad. And so you have a clan tribe with you. 
which is why in chapter 6 they sat down in groups of 50s and 100s, not just to make it easier to head count, but they were more like villages and associations and friendships. We're, we have a, a wonderful morning today with Lord's Table and the communal, community meal, and you'll probably aggregate to, <clears throat> to people that you know a little better. You'll keep a herd on your kids. Same was true in the first century. So you, you had that family system together. So the point of the miracle is it doesn't matter if it's 4,000, 8,000, 12,000, or 400,000. If he can produce enough for 4,000, he can handle more than that. The detail of the seven baskets is what I think is meant to get the reader and the hearer's attention. We had 12 before, 12 baskets, one for each disciple. Now we have seven paralleling. What do you have? We have seven loaves. Well, we're going to have seven baskets. These baskets are different than the baskets in chapter 6. This basket occurs in uh, Acts chapter 9, I think it's verse 35, where they put Saul in the same basket and put him out uh, through a hole in a wall because there's been a death threat on him and they're sneaking him away uh, to, to save his life. So this is a larger basket. The point isn't the size and the quantity. The point is to parallel the narrative. What do you got? Seven loaves. There's seven huge quantities left over from the seven loaves that you gave me. There's a lesson here that it's obvious, but we can easily miss these things. In, the, in, the, in our spiritual life, whatever God has required of you and me to do, you and I have more than enough provision to do what he requires of us. Um, I used the illustration a few weeks back about when we die and cross over the threshold. Don't, don't take this too super literally, but I get this picture of a basket being overflowing with all the resources that we missed. Uh, he, he has enough for you to have your marriage work, enough for you to get through your divorce, enough for you to get through your heartbreak, your disease, your cancer, your losses, your difficulties at work, um, relational dynamics and troubles, your job, uh, your career path. There's more than enough, but we live as though we have to provide the resources to pull off what Jesus wants us to do. And these disciples are going to get a great object lesson of these seven giant baskets in front of them going, I guess we had more than enough. And so the miracle is meant to not only feed the multitudes, but to teach them he has abundant provision for you to do what he requires of you to do in this life. Do you believe that? Do I believe it? And that's where faith in him comes in. Verses 9 and 10, he sends the crowd away, and again, Mark's favorite word, immediately they travel by boat to Dal Minutia. Let's read verses 11 through 13. Mark chapter 8, verse 11. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him, sighing deeply in his spirit. He said, why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. The opposition comes on the heels of the miracles. This is nothing new. The Pharisees are never far away. The antagonist, not only in the story, but the antagonist in Jesus' life. Now perhaps they were looking at Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 in their history as rabbinics. Those chapters, 13 and 18, talk about testing a prophet to see if he is really from God. If he's not from God, then you kill him. You disbelieve him. And so they're looking for ammunition. But we already know their heart. This is doublespeak. This is fake speak. This is fake news. We already know. Because in chapter 3, they said he was casting out demons by the ruler of demons. 
They'd seen him perform a miracle of casting out demons. And rather than saying, wow, this is amazing. This guy can cast out demons. He does it by the power of demons. Fake news. Doublespeak. Spin. Promoting falsehood. There's nothing new. And so they're, they're trying to soil his reputation so people will not believe them. What's interesting in this particular setting is that verse 12 where it says Jesus sighing deeply, it's the only time it occurs in the Bible. When anything like this pops up, it always intrigues me. Maybe it does you, maybe it doesn't. But if you're a person that studies words and phrases and like BSF or precept, this stuff just gets me all excited. Why is it only one time here? And then you, you look at it in some depth. Uh, some of your Bibles have a little margin note that say literally sighing to himself which is an interesting insight on uh, how Mark records the gospel. But he sighs deeply. It expresses anguish. It, it expresses disdain and disbelief. He knows they're trying to set him up. And in this particular story, he's done with them. And so he leaves. He gives a formula, truly I say to you. This, he, you could read that as, you can't give me fake news. I'm not going to even talk about your double speak right now. I'm not even going to go there because you know and I know you're not interested in the sign. You've already determined you don't believe me. You're trying to catch me and trip me up somehow in their disbelief. And he's not going to be played. Twice we read this generation, again for you who study your Bible in detail, that term is loaded. And as with any word, you want to see the context it's used, how it's used, what it means in that audience. Sometimes he's talking to Jews. Sometimes he's talking to Gentiles. Sometimes he's talking to his own disciples. So it's, it's a catch-all term, but you've got to look at it in the context. So here he's talking to the scribes and Pharisees, his antagonist, and it's a rebuke to them. Truly I say to you. When Jesus says truly, truly, or truly I say to you, it's a very solemn expression. It loses it on us, our English ears. But it's like you know when your mother gave you that, I'm going to learn you. Let me explain something to you. Boy, you better listen to me. I mean, it's got that type of weight behind this phrase. Truly I say to you. And in fact, if you take all the times Jesus says truly, truly, there, are, there is an eternal weight to what he's saying. The consequences of what he's saying has an eternal ramification, not just a warning. So he warns them, truly I say to you, he's not going to be manipulated. Verse 13, he leaves them. And I love Mark's verbs. You hear me talk about the swift nature of the gospel of Mark, immediately these verbs he uses. It's a shorter gospel, it's a faster paced gospel, and because of that, the movement is part of the way he writes the story to keep the reader moving along. And I think there's a, a set, subtle message here that he's leaving them. They've come to trip him and reject him, he leaves them. You might say it this way, they're going to reject him, he's going to reject them. And Mark moves it very quickly. It's an abrupt story. And then we're on to the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, for you who study your Gospels in detail, your Bible, verses 12 and 13 is the movement from the masses, from his public ministry to his private ministry. This ends Jesus' large ministry. No more groups, no more crowds, no more thousands of people on sides of hills, no more synagogues. It's now with the twelve. And so this ends the public ministry of Jesus, and we transition. In verses 14 and following, we see the disciples continue to fail who, to grasp who this Jesus really is. And they had forgotten to take bread. And they did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to 
discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. Jesus was aware of this and said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? Now, let me pause for just a second. If you have a red-letter Bible, there's a lot of red right now. And uh, he's just teed them up for this question. Don't you remember with the 5,000? And let me read you the response the way. I think they kind of eeored it. 12. And when I broke seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets of broken pieces did you pick up? Seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Well, in this <coughs> setup, they have been warned about a number of things. And now they've moved away at the end of this public ministry, and he's going to focus just on teaching them. Um, the admonition he gives them about watching out for the Pharisees, watching out for the leaven, is important for us to understand. Leaven is a very common metaphor in rabbinic literature in the first century. The idea that a little bit that you can't even really see it permeates a whole lot of bread starters for dough, yeast for bread. They understood this metaphor. And what he's saying is that a little bit of leaven, here used in a negative sense, permeates all the Jews. A little bit of leaven from Herod permeates the nation. This is an unusual point for Jesus to make because he speaks both of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Remember, Herod was a half-Jew. He was very um, kind to the Jews. He helped them build synagogues. In fact, if you ever travel to Israel, you'll see Herodian synagogues that he built all over Israel, all over Jerusalem. Uh, they were ones that he constructed for worship. So he had this affinity toward the Jew. What's he saying here at the high level? Um, let me put it in, in common day terms. Mainline churches no longer believe the unadulterated gospel. Mainline churches moved away from the Bible a long time ago. Yes, you'll find believers in mainline churches, but from their doctrinal statements, from their pulpits, from their Sunday school classes, they left the Bible a long time ago. A little leaven affected a whole lot of people. In the first century, he's saying Herod, who's a religious political leader, his leaven affects a nation. Has anything changed? The leaven of churches that become cultic or at best false teachers or very confused te uh, churches, the level of politician who he or she runs with the moniker of putting Christian around their name, they can affect a lot of people. He says, beware, beware. That doesn't mean you, you abdicate. He's just saying pay attention because false teaching is nothing new. Fake news is nothing new. And it spreads and it affects. So you disciples, watch out and you beware. Don't be led into unbelief by powerful voices that have a religious power or that have political power. Certainly in his day, the scribes and Pharisees, the disciples were always terrified of the scribes and Pharisees, and rightly so. And they were also terrified of Rome. Because if Rome said they were done, they were out. They were, they, were, they were exiled. They'd be run out of Jerusalem, which happened a few years after Jesus' death. Well, verse 16 is at least tragic or uh, perhaps ironic because they miss the whole point of what Jesus is saying to them. Um, in this litany of questions, they could not, according to Hebert, they could not understand even using their, mo their own minds. Now, depending on how your Bible lists the questions, 
Remember, in the New Testament, there are no commas or punctuation or question marks or anything. Uh, the, the translators have to uh, study the text and make those um, for the English reader. And so there might be eight. My Bible has eight questions. Your Bible have, may have ordered them differently. Why do you discuss that you have no bread? Have you not seen or understood? Do you have a hardened heart is the root word for stone. It's obdurate or impervious to, to change. Then two Old Testament quotes. Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Hang on to that eyes and ears for a moment. Uh, verse, uh, the, the, sixth, the sixth question. Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves? Then the seventh. Don't you remember about the seven loaves? So each of these questions comes as a reminder of what have they seen and what have they heard. You saw me do these things. You've heard me say these things. Don't you understand? And these questions come hard and fast in Mark's record, and they're rebuking, which is why I think they say 12, 7, because they're, they're hearing it, they're being reminded of it, but then the culminating question, the most poignant one, verse 21, do you not yet understand? I believe Jesus' tone turns from rebuke to appeal. He's rebuking them for their forgetting what he's done. They've seen it, they've heard it, they don't understand it. Verse 21 puts the cap on it. Don't you, notice carefully, not yet. He doesn't say, you idiots. He says, don't you yet? Implication, there will come a time when they will. Don't you yet understand that? So while he's rebuking them, he's also admonishing in a teaching fashion so they begin to understand just who this Jesus is. Well, finally, we have the blind man's plea in verse 22 and following. They came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he, that's the man, looked intently and was restored. And he began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. Now, a couple of things here. First, three verbs, or three, three, three uh, important points. We have the uh, official who brings his daughter in chapter 5, and he wants Jesus to touch her. We have the, um, the unidentified group of the, of the deaf man, and they want him to touch him. Here we have the unidentified blind man, and they want him to touch him. If you're hearing these stories for the first time, they're being told, you're picking this up. When you read it, we sometimes miss the obvious. But they're seeing this touching, touching, touching theme. Now, if you, if you go to the doctor, if you go to your PA or NP, whoever you see, and you have a problem, and they're removed from you with their iPad or keyboard or whatever, it feels a little clinical, a little sterile. But if they come over and they, they put hands on you and they check your pulse maybe and look at you, in my case, they look in my back, they poke, poke around in my abdomen. They, you know, there's something about that tactile experience. I don't understand all I know, but at least it seems to me like he or she cares. That I'm not like, you know, can't touch this patient, I don't want to get sick or whatever. Um, I don't know if that's meant to be the point, but it is interesting to me that each of these groups says, will you touch him? Will you touch him? Will you put your hands on her? And obviously they saw some power in that perhaps, but more importantly, you care, right? And you were willing to touch the patient, so to speak. And remember the trouble he gets into when he touches a leper. 
You don't touch a leper. Well, Jesus is above being unclean, so he can do that. Well, there's a very important thing I want you to see here. Um, there's, we call them pericopes. There's a, a, a story and little stories within the story. We call them pericopes. We have two pericopes, the mark and sandwiches in this passage, that are incredible. We have the, the deaf man in chapter 7, 21 and following. We have the blind man in chapter 8, verse 22 and following. For you Bible study folks, you precept folks, this is your assignment for the week. Take those two passages, write them down side by side, and knock yourself out. Comparison, contrast, word phrases, verbs, it'll blow your mind. These two stories are pinned on the sandwich in the middle of the story. What's the story about? Don't you see? Don't you hear? Don't you understand who I am? I just healed a deaf person. I just gave a guy a new set of eyes. I just multiplied loaves and fish. Don't you see? Don't you hear? And we might add, don't you of all people, verse 21, understand who I am yet? Mark sews together a supernatural story structurally so we can see and even now hear as we read and ask you the question, do you understand? He isn't just some good guy. He isn't a Gandhi. He isn't just another prophet. And this book, the, the more you study this book, you will see it's otherworldly. Uh, Spurgeon said, no one ever outgrows the scripture. It widens and deepens with our years. The more you study it, the more you go, I never saw that before. I never knew that before. And that doesn't happen reading Shakespeare, believe me. You'll learn stuff, but it won't change your life the way the living word of God does. Each of these three miracle accounts in, in Mark, he takes the individual aside from the crowd, which I find very fascinating. He spits on the guy. Which it's, it's kind of abrupt. He spits on him. So if you're blind and this guy takes you by the hand, he's now touched you, and he takes you out of the crowd, and the next thing you know is, you feel this guy spit in your face. I mean, that'd be kind of startling. And then there's debate about what Jesus actually did. Liberal scholars have a field day uh, to the extent, well, maybe Jesus couldn't like totally do the miracle the first time. He'd have a second try. I mean, liberal scholars are just delightful to read. <laughs> Is there a purpose be 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 with the two-stage miracle? Dr. John Grasmick writes, the unusual question, do you see anything? indicates it was intentional on Jesus' part. In other words, he could have said, do you see? Do you see anything is key. The man was no longer totally blind, but his sight is still poor. Grasmick writes, how like him were the disciples? Their sight was not perfectly clear yet. Secondly, when Jesus puts his hands on the man's eyes, again, the man looked intently and he began, his sight was restored, and he began to see everything clearly. He looked intently, and he saw clearly, and then he continues, now this will be the outcome for the disciples. So the two-stage miracle is showing them, that they're starting to get it. I see a little bit, yeah, there was 12, there were 7, but oh yeah, now I get it. And so if you take these two miracles, that's why I say, go home and study them. Put the deaf miracle against the blind miracle. Look at those pericopes and then go back to the middle of this passage and the staccato of questions with the Old Testament ramification. Don't you see and hear? Don't you, don't you hear? Don't you understand? 
And the culmination question in the middle, do you not yet understand? They are with the God-man. And they don't quite get it. Don't want to be hard on them. We're just like them. And more probably problematic for us is that we know a lot more than they did, but we don't believe any more efficiently or fervently that there'll be enough in our resource basket. I'm going to ask the men and women to go ahead and distribute the elements. We want you to hold on to the elements and invite our band to come back as we continue in worship. And, and as you hold these elements, re reframe a little bit, think a little bit about your own spiritual journey. What have you seen? What have you heard? Um, I don't know, as you go back to your salvation, what it means to you, but every time I go back to when I came to Christ, the thing that overwhelms me is that he's forgiven me completely. Nothing I have ever done, nothing I can ever do would make him love me less. No matter what sin in my past, how egregious or how small, affects the way he loves me. See, this is not human nature. We, we look at people, well, they hurt me, and they did this to me, and I can't love him or her anymore, and I'll never be hurt, hurt again, and we hold that revenge and injustice. and uh, We all do that. We're humans. And Christ says, I forgive you completely. I don't know where you are in your reflecting on your salvation, but that's the one that always dismantles me. How can he love me that much that he's forgiven me that completely? And that's what Mandy and her team are going to lead you in thinking through that. How much he loves you and that he's completely forgiven you. What have you seen in Christ in your life? What have you heard about him in your life? Do you understand who he is? And you're holding a little piece of cracker to remind you of his broken body in your place on your behalf instead of you. You take a little sip of juice to remind the blood that was shed for the new covenant. Apart from the shedding of blood, there is what? No remission of sin. That's the method. That's the means by which he can look at you and me and say, I love you. I've forgiven you in your mind. And I won't remember your sin that you've done. What have you seen? What have you heard? And do you understand? Hold the elements for a moment or two as they go by and pray and meditate and then take them at your own will.